All right, if you want to come in, grab a seat, you can open up to Psalm chapter 86. So last week, one of my favorite bands was in town called Mumford and Sons. I don't know if you have some Mumford fans in the house. And uh, I kind of wanted to go to the show. I haven't seen this band live yet. And my birthday's around the corner, so I thought maybe like, there might be some surprise and I get tickets. That didn't happen. That's cool. I'm not, you know. But it's, uh, they were in town, and uh, something really interesting happened. As I didn't get to go, I was kind of following the concert kind of online and watching what was happening. And the day of the show, they announced that the band that was opening for them, Gang of Youths, which is kind of this new band that's super popular, uh, canceled. And they canceled because they were sick, so they weren't able to get out here. And, uh, you know, Mumford's, you know, like, they're, they're pretty big, um, pretty big act themselves. But because that was a real popular band, they're like, we're so sorry. Since this band's not playing, um, we're excited to announce that a different band's going to be playing. They're local. They're new. They're trying to get their, a big break. They're called uh, uh, the, the Sun Never Goes Down on the Cool Kids. And we're excited that they'll be, um, they'll be opening for us. So everyone's kind of like... Who is that? Local, like what? Local, like does someone like have a? Is it like their nephew like has a band and they're like letting him go on and uh, so everyone's like real confused about like who is this band that's opening for Mumford and it kind of created this stir. Um, so as the show opens, uh, the sun never sets and the cool kids comes out and uh, like one of the guys is dressed up as a t in the T Rex outfit and he walks out and he starts singing ACDC's "Shook Me All Night Long" and. Everyone's like, what in the world is going on here? And everyone from uh, The Sun Never Sets and the Cool Kids is wearing some sort of an outfit and a costume. And uh, one was dressed up like the Pope. One was dressed up like uh, an 80s rocker. And they start playing all these cover songs. And they're like, they're like, awesome. It's like super cool. But it's so bizarre. And everyone's like, who is this? As the show starts to continue and progress through the first couple of songs, they start to realize that, oh, the guy in the... <laughs> The uh, the rhinosaur the the T Rex outfit is playing the banjo, and wow, this lead singer sure sounds a lot like Marcus Mumford. And sure enough, Marcus Mumford is disguised as a band, and they're opening for themselves <laughs> under the name of another man. Like so, everyone's like going nuts. Like this is like I'm trying to I'm like so after the show they're posting about online. I'm so confused. I'm like, what just happened? And there's like these pictures of these people wearing outfits and um, just this bizarre thing. And and yesterday, I was at the, the Walk for You Mom and was talking to Julie Olinger, and she's explaining it all to me. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that all makes sense. And it was brilliant on Mumford's part. Um, and I think Julie was telling me, it's the first time a band's done this where they've opened for themselves in disguise since like Def Leppard in like the 80s or something. And uh, so it went from just like being this concert in Phoenix to being this thing that created buzz like all over the world. It was like this epic night, and I missed it. Uh, <laughs> But it's a really cool story, really cool story that happened. And um, I, I wanted to open with that because um, it, it's, it was playful and Mumford kind of like fooled everybody, right? Like, um, and today I want to talk about something that isn't necessarily playful. And uh, but it, talking, talking about the idea of, of living our true selves. What Mumford did um, was great. They deceived everyone, and it's hilarious, and it, and it was one of those things that, like, that people will talk about, the show in Phoenix where they did this. Um, we started a series a couple of weeks ago um, about this idea of being relatable and how we relate to others and our relationships with God and each other, and our desires for these relationships to flourish. We, we have relationships, and relationships are challenging, um, but through, uh, uh, through, through reflection and allowing God to transform us, um, 
we become, we become gifts in our relationships to other people. And so we're talking about, you know, what does a relatable person look like? And the first group we talked about, usually, like, relatable people are self-aware. They have just the self-awareness. Um, and there's different things that we can do to kind of increase self-awareness. Um, last week, we talked about how relatable people have humble hearts. And so they, there's this sense of humility about them. Um, their ego doesn't get in the way of relationships. And so, like, people who are self-aware, who have humble hearts, tend to uh, uh, flourish in relationships. And today, I want to talk about this idea of authenticity, um, of, of living authentic lives. And I think that people who are relatable are authentic. Um, I want to open with Psalm 86. Um, Psalm 86 in the NS, NRSV says this. It says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. I give thanks to you, O my Lord, with all of my heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Let me read it one more time. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. I give thanks to you, O my Lord, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, depths of the grave. A couple things that pop out in there is this idea that the psalmist is saying that there's this desire to walk in truth, to live truthfully, to walk in truth, and to have an undivided heart. To walk in truth and have an undivided heart. When I think about this idea of living truthfully, having this undivided heart, this word authenticity comes to mind. Being someone who is authentic. Authentic as a person. Authentic in their relationships. They're walking in truth. Um, look at a lot of different definitions of what it means to be authentic, what auth- authenticity is. And one of my favorites that I came across is this. It says, to be authentic. And something that is authentic is conforming to an original so as to reproduce essential features. If something is authentic, it's Conforming to an original so as to reproduce essential features. Um, authentic is something that actually is like something that sells these days, right? Especially like it, it started to enter like the language of marketing back in like the 1990s. It's almost like as the world has gone more digital and we've had more technology, we desire things that are authentic in our products. We want the real thing. We want something that is as close to the original as possible. That's what, in fact, we would say that even gives it value to be authentic. Um, but this idea of conforming to an original so as to reproduce essential features, I think is important because what it means to be an authentic human is to be, we are humans who are created in the image of God. And if we go back to the creation story in Genesis, when, when God creates humanity, it says male and female, God has created them in his image. And so we bear the image of God. We're image bearers of our creator here on earth. It also says that we're icons of God. And so we, we are, we, we're, we're these image bearers, we're these icons here on earth of our creator. Um, and to be authentic is to conform to the original, our creator, so as to reproduce essential features. To be authentic people is to be people who are the people of God in this world, who are committed to the things of God, that those essential features of love and forgiveness and compassion and truth flow out of us to the rest of the world. So today I want to explore, 
Here's what weakens authentic living, and here's what strengthens authentic living. And um, some of this is kind of like just kind of some of the stuff that I've, I've come to understand when it comes about authenticity. I, again, it, this is something that I don't think you just like package and then do X, Y, and Z and you become authentic. This is something that, that we live life and life is messy and everything's not always black and white. There's these things that happen. Um, but the desire is to walk in truth in everything that we do, that we would be people who live truth and live authentic, li- authentic lives. So the first thing that weakens authenticity, uh, the first thing that weakens authenticity is lying. Lying. Now, lying takes on many different forms. It could be a little white lie. It could be like a really big lie. Um, but, but lying is something that, that just destroys and weakens being authentic. If authentic is the real thing, lying is something that's not the real thing. And lying is difficult for everyone. We all struggle with it, even in subtle ways. Um, I was at a birthday party yesterday, and uh, my son Micah was playing in a room, I think he was on these bunk beds, and hit his head on the fan. Um, and uh, so like I was sitting outside on the patio, hanging out with the dudes, and uh, everyone came rushing out, and I could tell like there's panic in faces. And all of a sudden, my son Micah comes out, and he's holding his head, and he's got this big red like bubble with blood pouring everywhere. And it's, it's coming out, it was like all over the floor, it comes out, it's all over the patio, it's all over his shirt. Um, so like Marcy grabs like you know a rag and she's trying to hold it and I come up and I'm trying to stop it and like like there's like that initial moment of panic like it looked like he was like shot in the head or something and I am freaking out. There's another thing that happens and some of you know me when I see blood, um, <laughs> and it started to happen and so I'm trying to stay cool. I'm trying to not panic. I'm trying to look like you know the dad who can help and it. And as I'm dealing with blood and I'm holding the blood and I have this paper towel that just turns into this wad of blood, I just, I'm like trying to breathe and I feel like my heart's starting, stopping to like stop beating. And I'm like, I'm gonna go see if I can find another towel. And I'm trying to get out of the scene and I feel terrible because I'm like, Marcy's helping and everyone else is helping and they're trying to figure out what to do and I'm trying to help and I have to get out of there. And I'm thinking, I'm about to throw up. And so like, we're at the party, the son cracks his head open, there's blood everywhere, and then the dad throws up. I'm like, we're that family. <laughs> and so I like, I go to the, and I originally go to the bathroom trying to find like something to help. But I'm not thinking straight. Um, and I just close the door, lock it, and lay down on the floor, <laughs> like, like on my back. And I'm laying there, and I'm trying to breathe, and I really think I'm gonna throw up. And like my shirt is just soaked in sweat. Um, and I'm in there for a few minutes, and then I start to, I, I'm like, okay, I can breathe again. So I get up and I, I go back outside of the patio and like they're, you know, washing him off. There was a nurse practitioner there who's, you know, cleaned him up and it starts to happen again. So I go back to the bathroom. Um, and, and finally Marcy was like, I'm going to take him over to urgent care. And we find out that it wasn't like a really bad cut. It was just, and it wasn't big. It was just like deep. And so head wounds bleed a lot. And this happens to our kids like every other month or so. Um, and... So we're fine, and Marcy's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. Um, and she decides, okay, I'm gonna take Micah to urgent care, you stay here with the other kids. And so like for, for like the next hour, people kept coming up and talking to me, and they're like, are you okay? Like, where'd you go? And um, there was this, like, I was completely embarrassed and ashamed. I like, I don't know why, but I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I can't control myself, and so, 
Like, I was thinking of, like, yeah, I was just trying to find, you know, and I was finally like, I, was, I went and, like, laid down on the floor in the bathroom. And, and like, it was so, I felt so ashamed of that. And there was, there was this weird gravitational pull that I wanted in front of everyone to just say, yeah, I was just trying to help and looking around for different towels and making sure we cleaned up all the blood, and I had it together. And, and like, this is just, like, this small event, yet there was this unbelievable gravitational pull to say, like, I didn't want to tell the truth of what really happened because I felt like everyone at the party is now judging me, right? And uh, there's, there's this weird gravitational pull of, of truth-telling and to, to cover up things that we're embarrassed of and ashamed of, and it happens all the time. And I, I was surprised thinking, like, I can't believe how big this need inside of me to, like, cover for myself is. These people don't care. Like, they understand. Mike is safe. Like, that's the main thing. Like... Like, why am I, like, trying to, like, cover it up? And, and I think that we all have this tendency inside of us as this gravitational pull to, like, uh, to, to not be living truthfully because of the things that we want to cover. Um, uh, in, in her book on lying, Moral Choice in the Public-Private Life, uh, Cecilia Bach writes this, that those who lie usually weigh only the immediate harm to others from the lie against the benefits they want to achieve. But the, th the flaw in such an outlook is that it ignores or estimates two additional kinds of harm. The harm that lying does to the liars themselves and the harm done to the general level of trust in social cooperation. And I was thinking about that like, I was ashamed of like having this episode where I was passing out and yet at the same time like, I didn't wanna just like, I, I feel like the only thing that was even more flaky than me like, not being there is if I was lying about like what really happened to this group of people. Like that would have created this weird like, what is wrong with that dad? You know, um, lies tend to create more lies. They tend to 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 take situations that like yesterday that incident that was unfortunate for our son, my son and me, and it could have just taken it into this whole different thing of not living truthfully. Um, I was talking to Marcy last night about like what is it do you think that that causes people to lie? Like if we do this. Uh, you know, like word association was the first thing that popped into your mind. And, and Marcy said, I, I think it's fear. Like people lie because of fear. And my thought was like, I think people lie because they want to control situations. And the thought of like owning up to something is you kind of lose control of the situation. But like lying allows you to feel like you're kind of controlling it. Mark Knapp uh, wrote a book about lying and he said, um, here's the reasons why people will tell lies. To avoid, to avoid punishment, to protect oneself from harm, to obtain a reward for oneself, to protect or help another person, to win admiration of others, to get out of an awkward or embarrassing situation, <laughs> um, to maintain privacy, to exercise power over others, to fulfill expectations, and to have fun. There's all sorts of reasons that we, we tell these lies. And, and oftentimes, many of us, we, we live these half-truths in our thinking, and yet what we don't realize is that it actually kind of can, can corrode away authenticity in relationships. Um, that's what lying does. It just weakens our authenticity as we try to, to hide or we tell these half-truths. Um, and often it's coming because of, you know, we're, we're trying to hide something embarrassing, or it's not even like, like evil reasons that we're lying. Um, but it's not living in truth, and it weakens authenticity uh, to, to lie. The second thing is this idea of deception. Deception of others weakens authenticity. And there's this really interesting story that takes place in the Bible in Acts chapter 5. 
and it's the new church. And when we think about the new church, um, if you've been around the church, what we always say is like, we wish we could go back to what the early church was like because they seem to have it right. And in the first couple chapters of, of Acts, you have this glimpse of, of the kingdom of God on display. And it's so compelling and life-giving and exciting and miracles are happening and people are, are sharing life together and their needs are met. And it's just this compelling story that's spreading throughout the Roman Empire and everyone's excited about it. But nothing prepares us for what happens in Acts chapter 5. And there's this story that happens in Acts chapter 5. If I was talking to Tim about it this week, his thought was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I forget that's in the New Testament. That sounds like Old Testament stuff right here. And, and I want to just read the story and then kind of talk about what I think is going on here. But it says, in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With the wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. He bought, brought the rest of it to the apostles' feet. And this was a time where the, the early church was doing these radical sacrifices to take care of the needs in their community. So this is ingrained in their, they are just these generous people that are taking care of others. Um, so sell this land, come to the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, uh, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you have received from the, for the land? So, like, somehow Peter knows, like, there's something not happening here. There's something, there's some authenticity here that's broke down, and he can kind of read into the situation. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And, and after it was sold, wasn't it your money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. He's like, it's your, it's your resources, it's, it's your choice to do it, but, but the thought that you're doing in a way that is so deceptive, like, you're, this is, like, why do you have to do this? It says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Boom. What? <laughs> he fell down and died, and a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Then in some weird, like, Shakespearean twist, it says, verse 7, about three hours later, the wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Like, she was in on this, on this deception, too. Peter asked her, tell me, you know, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yes, this is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry out also. And at that moment, she fell down dead at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What do we do with this passage? Well, we don't want to preach about it because it's super uncomfortable. So, um, but this passage, when, when you think about it, you know, I think there's, there's probably a lot going on here. And uh, when we read it initially, you know, there's like, did, did God... Is he the reason they died? Was it guilt? Was there something else going on behind the scenes? We don't know. But we know that there was something terrible that did happen here. And when we talk about, like, the early church, you never hear people saying, like, let's bring back that sort of conviction to the church now, right? Like, this is something that just shatters this community. It shatters the community. And when I hear the story, what it reminds me of is even in the garden, like, when Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates humans and relationships and everything's good and they feel no shame, and then you have this this deception that takes place that is called the, kind of the fall of humanity, and there's this breaking where they buy into this deception, and we see brokenness enter the story. Here in Acts with the new church, with this new creation, we have this church, like the, the, the church 
is spreading and everyone's taking care of each other's needs and, and it's super compelling and all of a sudden there's something that happens that is just is like this breaking point and it's devastating. And, and, and we're not really exactly sure all the details of how it happens or what happens, but we know that deception happens. Christine Pohl in her book, Living into Community, writes this about it. It says that these people had chosen deception and deception and lying moved directly into the heart of community life. There may have been additional issues at work in this event, but a central part of the story is about the extraordinary danger of deception within community. Deception and lying and half-truths endanger communities and it undermines our best efforts. And they have been from the beginning, large and small. They break communities apart. They distort our relationship with God and they separate us from each other. Deception of others, it just... It weakens authenticity. It weakens living into truth. And there's always consequences. And, and you may have experienced this in your life where you have been deceived by someone. And it wounds you deeply. You've experienced the pain of being deceived. And you know what that does to relationships. You know what that does to communities. And you wonder, like, why is this story in, in the Bible? I think what's amazing is the Bible doesn't leave out, like, the brokenness of the church. It says, even in the early church, when everything is great, there's still people who deceive. If you want to be a part of a church, you're going to be a part of people, and people, a community of people are broken. All of us have a brokenness. And yet there's something about this community that can walk with each other in the midst of brokenness. And we get to that of what happens when we're able to, to heal from things that have wounded us from deceptions. Deception hurts us community, it hurts us personally, it hurts our marriages, it hurts our families, it hurts the people that we do life with. And I have to wonder if maybe this story, there's, there's something here that the, the weight of it and with these people like losing their lives, maybe there's something that's saying, this is how dangerous deception can be. There's a, there's a certain breaking of community and death that takes place here. And we have to be aware of that. When we don't live into truth, there's great brokenness that comes. Deception of others. Then deception of self. Self-deception. Self-deception. The action or practice of allowing oneself to believe that a false or unvalidated feeling, the idea that the situation is true. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is a deceitful thing above all things. Like we are, we can buy into this self-deception. Yeah, here's what I've found with, with my self-deception. Um, it's, it's a sense of denial. I, I live in a sense of denial often about a lot of things. Probably the most unhealthy part of my entire life and what I try to filter all of my toxic thoughts are into is being a Phoenix Suns fan. It's my favorite basketball team in the world. If you want to see unhealthy, toxic Jared, watch me at a Phoenix Suns game. I am not a pastor in those moments. Like, and I, I feel like there's like this thing where like I've been, I've been a Suns fan since I was a kid and and, and I'm living in this terrible place as a Suns fan, and we all know how dysfunctional the Suns organization is. I tell people they're also like the fourth winningest franchise in NBA history. They're going through a rough patch right now. They're gonna get it figured out. And here's another thing that I do. This is called denial. This is like the Suns are actually gonna be okay and they're gonna be good sometime soon. And I buy into it, I give them my energy, my allegiance. I'm so excited about this upcoming season. And I live in this self-denial of of who the Phoenix Suns are. And I think that the Suns 
would be a whole lot better, but there's this league conspiracy where the NBA doesn't like our owner, and so they're causing the refs to throw games against us, and they're giving us terrible draft picks when we should have won the lottery a number of times. And can you see like how this, like, I really believe this too. I'm like, God, like it's not good, it's not healthy for my soul. Um, and there's this place in my life where there's this self-denial, there's this self-deception, um, where I just think, you know, our problems aren't our own problems as a, as a organization. It's because somebody else has created these problems for us. And our failures aren't our fault. We've done the right thing, and then somebody else is out to get us. And I, I live in the self-deception as a Suns fan. Um, and the truth is, we, I, I do that with other things as well. I think that we all live with sort of self-deception. Um, and it doesn't allow us to be authentic because we no longer are owning up to, like, here's probably what's really happening. Uh, the Suns aren't very good. <laughs> They're a young team. They have no chemistry. They've gone through a different coach every year. It's not the NBA's fault. Um, we do this with things in life all the time, all the time. Uh, Christine Pohl goes on to say, uh, oh, it's not Christine Pohl, um, but uh, that Mark Knapp, who has, wrote this book about lying and deception, says, we tend to attribute success to our own abilities and blame our failures on external factors. We tend to view evidence depicting us unfavorably as flawed while viewing positive feedback uncritically. We think our good traits are unusual while our faults are common. Self-deception flourishes when we offer rationalizations, blame others for our problems, and evade responsibility. Self-deception corrodes authenticity. We blame others for our problems and we evade responsibility. If we wanna live in truth, if we wanna be truthful people, we are people who take responsibility for our problems. We are people who embrace our brokenness and do something about it. And how often we, we live in denial of, of who we are and what our problems are. We no longer become authentic. And the fourth thing that I think corrodes Authenticity is image management. Image management. Um, we, we Photoshop our lives. We, we control what gets presented. Um, and it's so easy uh, uh, to do this. We, we only put on display what we want others to see. And we try to hide the things that we are ashamed of. And, and yet when you meet authentic people, you find um, that you don't feel like they're, they're trying to project something. They're just comfortable in their own skin. They're comfortable with who they are. They're honest about the things in life that are challenging. And I think this is, is harder and harder, one, in our culture, and two, because of like, social media. It's just we're able to control what we present to others. My wife and I love to binge watch shows on uh, Netflix and Hulu, and all these things are starting to add up. It's at some point just going to be cheaper to have cable. But um, <laughs> we, we love to binge watch shows, but we don't like the same kind of shows. And so I like action and adventure. She likes you know, romance and comedy. Um, but when we first got married, there was a show that I liked. And as I say this, I don't want you to think less of me. I'm managing my image right now. Uh, we, I, I like the show Desperate Housewives. And I, Marcy liked it and I liked it. We found a show that we both liked. Um, and to me it was amazing because this is a show about these, these households who have these cooker, cookie cutter like houses. Uh, they have these manicured lawns. They have these, they're all beautiful people and yet their lives are all disasters, and they're all falling apart, and it's just this constant drama, 
And they're trying to, to manage their images around the neighborhood. And the more they try to manage it, the more it just is like this downward spiral of like life spinning out of control. And I just like was like watch that with popcorn thinking like this is great. This is amazing. Um, but it, but it's so, it is so true. Like we, it, we, we care so much about kind of image and managing that image. And, uh, and there's a danger there. There's these unintended consequences when we can no longer just be honest and open about who we are. And we spend so much time and energy trying to hide the things that we're ashamed of and only projecting. And then what happens is you, you're hanging out with people and all of a sudden like you find out that the family just falls apart. And it, it just blows up. And no one has any idea what was going on because the, ima the image has been managed so well that we don't understand the things that are actually going on that need healing and need hope and need life spoken into. And so there's this danger when we just present the best things about ourselves and we're trying to manage our image that it, it just weakens authenticity. We no longer live in truth. And there's a danger there. So what strengthens authenticity? What is it that strengthens authenticity? Again, it's not something that you can just get in this package and all of a sudden become an authentic person. It's something that you have to, to work, that work hard at. I love this thought is that we live authentic lives as we fully embrace the purposes of God. We experience the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, guiding us into truth and truthful living. And we know Jesus who is full of grace and truth. The Quakers have something that they do, that they practice authenticity. They have these four steps that they do, and I think these are good. The first thing that they do to strengthen authenticity is they listen well. They listen. This is a practice for them is to listen. Listening to God and listening to others. To listen well. The truth is, is that, that God is our creator. God is love and God is truth. And the more time that we spend with God, the more time that we're able to ground ourselves in reality. As we listen to who God is and what he's created us to be and designed us to do and what he's up to in this world, we start to, to see the world through the lens of God. We start to see the world through the lens of Jesus, which is an accurate view of, of what's going on around us. We see people then as Jesus would see people. We see situations as Jesus would see uh, situations. And that happens to spending time with God, listening to the voice of God in our life through scripture, through prayer, uh, through reflection, uh, through, through slowing down. When we allow God's grace and truth and righteousness to be the framework for interpreting community life and relationships, and individuals and communities are in a better position to address things that are broken because we've grounded ourselves in reality, which is God. And we allow him and his truth to flow into us. We receive it uh, so that we can navigate life in truth. Uh, we listen to each other well. I think authentic people are able to listen well. It's not just you know, about them and their agenda and what they're trying to do, but they're able to hear people. They hear people. I, you don't hear this in a lot of like church growth strategy books, but I think that churches that are healthy are churches that are able to listen well to the community, to the congregation, to their neighbors. We have to slow down and listen to each other and to God. It strengthens authenticity. The second thing is to speak truth, to speak truth with love. Now, when it comes to speaking truth, uh, some of you did the Enneagram, and you found out that you were an eight, which is a challenger, which means uh, you love to speak your mind. 
And so like you hear something about like, well, I'm just wired this way and I can speak truth into a situation and you light up. Um, and that's great. And we need people who can speak truth. Um, but to speak truth with love, uh, the, the, the people who, who love true, truth are, are able to build others up rather than using truth to tear people down. Truth is something that, that should bring about more life. It should bring about uh, more better relationships. It, 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 truth is something that builds people up. And much, much of our truth-telling should involve affirming what is good and right. And being truthful is not only about speaking these hard things. It's not just about speaking hard things, but it's discerning the whole picture with gentleness and humility and patience so that when you speak truth into situations, it's life-giving. You're helping bring about reality for people. And sometimes there's things that are hard truths that need to be spoken, um, and then sometimes there's simple things that need to be just called out. But when we speak truth, it's in a way that actually makes situations and people better. The Quakers speaking truth and love. We also speak truth, speak truth to God. We don't think about this very often, but to speak truth to God, to come to God and say, uh, here's what I'm really struggling with. Here's what I'm frustrated with. Here's why I'm acting this way. Here's something that I feel enslaved to. And we just come before God and we speak it. There's this old ancient church practice called confession. And when we hear confession, it sounds like, you know, all sorts of baggage attached to it. But here's what confession is. It's owning up to reality. And we come to God and we say, God, here, is, here are the things that I am struggling with, hurting. I need help. And we speak truth to God. And what we find is that when we confess to God, he's faithful and just. And he, he forgives us. He brings about a life of righteousness. We speak truth to each other. We don't often think about speaking truth uh, to God. Lord, ground me in reality. Uh, third thing is avoidance, avoiding, avoiding things that allow us to become toxic, um, gossip, um, comparison, uh, breaking confidences. There are certain things that we just need to avoid in our relationships if we want to live authentic lives. Avoiding those things um, that weaken uh, authenticity allows us to strengthen it. And then finally, resisting temptations to falsehood, uh, being coercive people, being control freaks. Uh, so it's so hard to surrender outcomes to God and say, Lord, I'm just going to resist um, trying to control the situation in a way that will destroy truth and authenticity. Um, so we listen, we speak, we avoid, we resist. And then the final thing that I think um, that, we, that we need is to be, to be authentic people is if authenticity is conforming to an original so that it reproduces essential features Coming to Jesus produces authenticity in our lives. Our creator, our sustainer, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we come to him and we surrender our hearts, we give our hearts to him. We say, Lord, help us to walk in truth. Help us to have an undivided heart. Here is our whole heart. What we find is that there's this, there's this God who loves us so much that sees us in the midst of all of our brokenness and says, I still love you. You don't have to manage your image around me. I love you as you are, but there's so much more that I desire for you. And so through this life that I'm offering you, through this life that, that I'm giving to you, what you will find is true contentment. You will find life everlasting. And when we come to God, when we surrender to him, when we come to Jesus, we find that we live truthfully in this world. Tim's going to come back up and we're going to spend some time uh, with communion. And for communion, for us, what it is is a way that we ground ourselves in reality. 
The story of communion is the story of the gospel, that Jesus, the image of the invisible God, uh, the firstborn of all creation, has come into this world, and he has come to reconcile all things. He has come to reconcile our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, to take the things that are broken and to heal them, to put them back together. The way that this happens is that Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross, takes the punishment of our brokenness. He breaks his body open. He pours his blood out. And when we come to the communion table, we remember that. There's this symbolic sacred act of taking bread that's broken and a cup of juice that represents these elements. And we remember what God has done out of his great love for us. Today at the communion table, here's my hope, is that we would say, Lord, ground us in reality. The lies that Satan tells us about ourselves that are so destructive, help us to have discernment not to know that, not to believe that. The way that we are deceiving others, Lord, help us to, to correct ourselves so that we aren't living in ways that harm other people. And Lord, let us experience the truth that comes from your presence and life with you. Ground us in reality today, Lord and fill us with your life that is full of truth and grace. When you're ready, you can move uh, about the room to communion. Um, we invite you to the table today. We practice open communion. Uh, we say if you are a follower of Jesus, come to the table. Um, if, if you've never come to this relationship with Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about that today. We believe that there's hope, there's grace, there's truth that allows us to live life that, that is eternal. When you're ready to move uh, to the tables, you can, and then Tim will close us today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day, and we thank you for your word. Um, these ancient words, Lord, from thousands of years ago, the psalmist that says, may we walk in truth, may we have an undivided heart. Lord, we want to be truthful people, people that walk in truth, that live truth, that are truth-telling not in a way that we're just trying to make you happy or please you. We do want to honor you, Lord, but, but we want our relationships to flourish. We want to put on display your love for us. We want things that are real. Relationships, friendships, community. And it's so hard because we live in this world where there's this gravitational pull that breaks our authenticity. Lord, we find in your presence our true selves. And we find in your presence, Lord, that we can be uh, who you've created us to be. Lord, I just ask that you would reveal and bring to light things in our life that are dis deceiving. And the ways that we are deceiving others, Lord, that you would bring those to the surface this morning. That you would heal us from those things. Lord, for those who are here today and they've been deceived by others and they're, they're feeling the weight of, of what that betrayal feels like, it has broken trust, it has broken um, wonder and hope, Lord, that they would find healing today. We would find healing at this table. And Lord, that the way that we live our life, um, Lord, that it would just be a great witness to who you are. So we come before you today, Lord, asking to allow us to live in truth with an undivided heart. We're so grateful for your love for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.